if you have a curious kid who wants to know more about this subject, then hand them an expository book. You know, this, this is a way to, as I call it, continue the curiosity, right? Like you've hooked them on that topic, but expository books take the kids in further and then get them thinking about how they can do this or that or change the world, right? Welcome back to Chalk and Ink, the podcast for teachers who write and writers who teach. I'm your host, Kate Narita, author of 100 Bugs, a counting book, and fourth grade teacher. Today's interview with middle school science teacher and author Jennifer Swanson is a fun-filled STEM extravaganza, just like Jen's best-selling Nat Geo book, Brain Games. Jennifer talks about how expository texts are filled with interesting bits of information that fuel children's curiosity how writers need to do their research in order to learn the voice and genres of different houses before submitting, and the importance of creating pictures in students' and readers' minds. Let's get started. Welcome, Jennifer. I am so excited to have you here today on Chalk and Ink. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I think we're going to have lots of fun, Kate. I think so, too. So I was hoping you could start us off by telling us a little bit about who you are as a teacher and who you are as a writer. Sure. So um, I actually have been teaching for Johns Hopkins University Center for Talented Youth, which is an online program for, oh my gosh, like 12 years, I guess, 13. It's been a while. (laughs) Um, I, I teach middle school science. So I teach earth and space science, life science, and physical science. Um, one semester they talked me into teaching, um, honors chemistry. That was rather fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, my ma- my, uh, bachelor's is in chemistry. So, um, but you know, so most of my students are gifted students and they're all around the world. And so I do more of a facilitating kind of thing. Um, and as a writer, uh, I am the author of, I think the number is about 45 now, mostly nonfiction books for kids, um, and mostly um, all about STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, because that's where my passion is. Um, and if and the fact that I can combine the two, it makes me even happier because I'm a huge science geek. <laughs> yeah, I can tell that from your website. I really <laughs> had fun exploring it. So for your online program, how many classes are you teaching a semester or how many students do you have? What does that look like? So it's basically an ongoing independent study type of course. So like I work every day of the year, you know, for the most part, um, because I have students that will just sign up. The The course runs about three to four months. So the, the parents will purchase that um, three to four months. But as you can imagine, every kid that comes in has their own time. So it's three months from the time they register. So it's kind of like an ongoing class. Um, but they're fairly extensive classes. I mean, they cover a lot of the topics. Like I said, it's, it's gifted and high level stuff. So even as I teach, I have learned a lot more about all of these subjects than I probably ever did when I was in school. I find that to be so true. I mean, I teach fourth grade and, you know, it's at a regular public school, but every day, affords me an opportunity to learn something new. So I bet you're just learning an incredible amount of information. Oh yeah. And the students are so smart. I mean, some of these questions I get, I just have to be like, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm not a particle physicist. I can't explain your answer, but I can tell you where to go look it up. (laughs) 
Yeah, I find myself saying that quite a few times. Mm-hmm. I don't know the answer, but I can look it up and get back to you. Right. And and you know what? I think as a teacher, I am totally fine with that. With admitting I don't I don't know everything. Um and also encouraging kids to look up stuff on their own because, you know, hey, that's that's how we that's how we learn, right? When when we have to go look it up ourselves, then we'll probably know it better. That's so true. If someone tells us something, it's in one ear and out the other. But if we take the time to research it ourselves and put a little more effort into it and then actually write it down, yeah. that's going to help us remember for sure. Ex- exactly. Exactly. So before we get a little bit further into the interview, I was hoping you could just tell us about a few of your books. So um, oh, sure. highlight some of them on your website. So go ahead and let us know. Okay. So, uh, geez, um, one of my favorite kids always ask you what are my favorite books? And it's really hard because it's really, honestly, I, part of, since I write nonfiction, I love doing the research and so forth. Um, but some of my favorites would be astronaut aqueduct, how space science and sea science interact. And this is a book that actually compares and contrasts being an astronaut and being an aquanaut, which really is a real term. Everyone's like, did you make that up for the book? No, I did not. Um, they actually call themselves, you know, they're, um, they're basically marine scientists that, that scuba dive and go dive, you know, deep sea divers and so forth. But um, they do use the term aquanaut. And that was a lot of fun to write because I got to interview some pretty amazing people. Um, I got to speak with um, Dr. Catherine Sullivan. She's the first female U.S. astronaut to walk in space. I got to um, speak with and meet Fabian Cousteau, who is the grandson of Jacques Cousteau. And that was just like my huge like fangirl moment. Um, so, th- you know, I enjoyed that. And that book is with National Geographic Kids. Um, one of the books that recently came out um, was I did a <laughs> a big fat notebook which is part of Workman's Big Fat Notebook series. If anybody uses those, they're really fun. This one is Everything You Need to Ace Chemistry and One Big Fat Notebook. And um, that was interesting because, you know, I graduated from college and took chemistry like 30 years ago. (laughs) So I was like, oh my gosh, it's kind of changed a little bit. Uh, Let's see. Another one is Beastly Bionics. Um, which I'm actually, I can let you know, you're one of the first people to know it won a Florida book award. I was very excited. I just found out. Congratulations. Um, thanks. Um, yeah, STEM books don't always get recognized. And this one is expository, which, you know, it's not a narrative one, but it's about, um, I tell kids when they read this to get outside and get inventing. It's all about biomimicry and how their um, scientists and engineers are looking at animals and plants to try and turn them into some type of robot or something that'll help people. Um, and then the last one, I mean, I could talk about all of them, but what my, one of my absolute favorite ones, this one was just so fun to write was save the crash test dummies. It's about the history of car safety engineering kind of told through the lens of a crash test dummy as he goes through his day. Um, so that one is all about physics, of course, and Newtonian physics and cars. And, and, uh, I actually presented that one at the library of Congress's national book festival in 2019. And my presentation was, do you have what it takes to be a human crash test dummy? (laughs) Well, people Uh, must've loved that. And you have that great video on your website where the kids can watch and actually try the experiments at home with some different kinds of cars and marshmallows. That's right. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. I had about almost a thousand people at my 
Library of Congress event, and um, a lot of them were parents, and it, I was pleasantly surprised at how many of them actually participated in the my interactive presentation. And a few of them even said, hey, I might be a crush with Summy for a day. So. <laughs> And I have to say, I went to school at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I noticed in your quiz and your astronaut and aquanaut, you had the one question of, yes, give me wintertime in Wisconsin all year long. So I just had to ask about that. Oh, yeah. Um, so um, I I grew up in central Illinois, so um, or outside Peoria, a little town called Washington. But my mom's family was from Wisconsin, so we used to go to visit Wisconsin all the time. Um, and it was, uh, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it, it, I have lots of fond memories. We even went to like camps and stuff there as a kid. Um, it was, it was a lot of fun. It is beautiful. Yeah. I grew up in a South suburb of Chicago and then attended university of Wisconsin, Madison. So we ah, okay. got that going on and, and I don't like Wisconsin winters. <laughs> yeah. They're there. They were, for me, they were fun to go visit because, um, my cousins had a huge, hill in their backyard and so we went sledding all the time but uh as far as living there yeah that's why i live in florida right like (laughs) well it's funny i live in central massachusetts and people will complain here about how cold it is and i'm like oh you you don't know cold no no (laughs) no I mean, being in, especially up around Chicago and, and Wisconsin, that's that's some pretty serious cold. It really is. It's not as snowy there as it is here in central Massachusetts, but it's, it is much colder. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So one more book I want to talk about before we move on is sure. Super Gear, Nanotechnology oh, yeah. and Sports Team Up. And I have to say, it was super fun for me to read this because... My son runs for Northeastern and he had all the information in there about the the running shoes. So I kept texting him pictures. Look at this and check this out. He's like, oh my gosh, what book are you reading? Yeah, that book. Oh, I, I loved, that was my first kind of foray. I mean, Brain Games with National Geographic Kids was the first uh, trade book I did, but my, my first my own idea was super gear. And I did that with Charles Ridge. Alyssa Pusey was my editor and she's just fabulous. And uh, I learned so much from her about how to write um, trade books and how, and, and how to explain science. Cause if you read my books, you know that I write fairly technical stuff. Um, and there's a lot of engineering, but I'm trying to write it so like a 10 year old would understand. So, um, that book is still one of my favorites. It's great. Uh, if you have the Olympics coming up, it's great to, to show that one to your kids in the classroom because it talks all about sports and science together. Yeah, it totally does. And Melissa Stewart featured your writing in five kinds of nonfiction where she, uh, talks about how wonderful you are at explaining the surface area, a potato versus the French fries from the nanotechnology. It's really great. Oh, that's great. It's good to hear. Thanks, (laughs) Melissa. (laughs) So um, which came first for you, your passion for teaching or your passion for writing? Well, I mean, I actually started writing stories when I was in kindergarten. So I would probably say that the writing came first. Um, I was that kid every week when they had show and tell. I don't know if they still do. Who would draw a little, uh, I would draw a picture of my dog. They, they were all stories about my dog. My dog went on a walk. My dog ate a flower. You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I've been writing my whole life. I've always had journals and I'm a huge reader. Uh, I just devour books even still. Um, so I think that came first. But um I've always, I, I've loved 
helping people, right? And and helping people to understand. And so I was inspired probably to kind of get into teaching by my seventh grade science teacher. It was, she was a female, uh, which was rather unusual back in the early eighties to have a female science teacher in a very small town. And her name was um, Mrs. Susan Roth. I've tried to track her down, but I can't find her anywhere. Um, But she was, she made teaching and learning so incredibly fun. I was like, wow, maybe I want to do that someday. Right. I just, she was just really inspiring to me. Yeah. I mean, a powerful teacher can make a tremendous difference. Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, how does your teaching affect your writing? Well, so as a teacher, um, you know, you have to be able to explain concepts in multiple ways, especially when you're dealing with like science or technology, something something that might be a little more difficult to understand. So I think as a teacher, I, I think what I do complements each other really well, because when I write, I clearly have to explain it. Um, you know, like, for example, the potato, the surface area. And so so if when you're talking about that is the, the thing about nanotechnology that's amazing is that it's like micro, micro, microscopic, it's nanoscopic, but, um, it has a huge amount of surface area. And as you have something with a larger amount of surface area, you have more reaction. So I try, I try, I always try to think in my books and I go back to my teaching to explain this too. What, what does a kid this age understand? Like everybody knows what a potato is. Well, most people, right. And you understand a potato has a certain thing, but then when you slice it in half, and then you slice it, you know, three or four times, all of a sudden you've increased the surface area. So when I explain stuff to my students, I try to put a mental picture in their head that they might understand. And of course, this translates really well into books. Um, so that's kind of my crossover there. Definitely. And on that, you know, that same idea, how does writing affect your teaching? Um, same way. I mean, um, writing is, I think, I can appreciate when my students have to answer, you know, like I have to read their lab reports and I was like, whoa, really good writer here. Um, But also I think it allows me to come at things in a bunch of different ways because that's what you have to do when you write. Um, And sometimes you struggle. So um, with trying to figure out how to explain a concept. So the funny one, if we want to keep using super gear, um, the whole idea of nanotechnology and trying to get kids to understand for me hinged on the fact that they have to understand that something that changes at the nanoscale can cause huge changes for the rest of the thing, um, you know, on, on a much broader scale. So how do you explain that? So the, the thing that I came up with was the water molecule. The water molecule shifts I can't now I can't remember the degrees off the top of my head, but it's like 1.4 or something, a very tiny shift in that molecule. And all of a sudden you go from liquid to ice. And I was like, this is like, kids can understand that they can understand that water. I freeze it. It turns to ice. And now they, now you teach them on the molecular level, what's actually happening. So that to me was kind of the cornerstone concept for how I could get kids to understand this. And that's, that's what I do in my writing. Um, the fact that I was a teacher and knew all about the water molecule, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> 
No, it's true. I think when you when you teach, you end up with a tremendous amount of knowledge. Yeah. Because as we talked about earlier, your students are always asking questions. But also, I found I'm not a scientist by training. I was a sociology and Spanish major, and then I had a master's in education and then an MFA in creative writing. And I have to teach every subject. Oh, wow. Yeah. So in science, I, I feel really, you know, ill-prepared. But the great thing about it is I'll read something and I'll be like, I don't understand that. I need, I need myself to do more research, you know, to be able to understand yeah. it. So I end up with a tremendous amount more knowledge than I would have if I weren't teaching that, you know, that topic. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, the, the thing about, about science, because I've heard that from a lot of teachers that, that they find science, if they're, if they don't have a background in it, they find it intimidating, you know, and what I encourage everybody to do is, uh, and I know you don't have a lot of time. So, um, you know, but doing things, um, doing little tiny experiments can just make knowledge explode and kids can really understand. Um, I went into my daughter's classroom one year, they were working on plate tectonics and, um, and the kids were just not getting it. And, and it was a brand new teacher and she was, she was struggling because I think she was fourth grade and she had to teach everything. And she was just like, I don't know, do science. And I was like, well, I, I mean, I volunteer my time to come in. I was getting my master's in science education at the time. And so I just Googled, how do I talk to these kids about plate tectonics? And I found this thing where you, you take like a, you know, one of those big jet puff marshmallows, right? And you dip it into liquid chocolate and you let the chocolate harden. So there's a shell on it. If you push up from the bottom with the marshmallow, the chocolate breaks apart, which would be a, you know, a convergent or divergent um, plate. If you pull it down, then then they're going to converge and they could possibly go over. So I could explain all of that to kids just with a tiny little having them play with the marshmallows and then they got to eat it as a snack. So they loved me. But all of that stuff is, you know, it's there and it's just the little things that you can do for science. Um, right now there's, I mean, there's podcasts, there's videos, there's all this kind of stuff that can help um, explain science to kids and make it fun in a fun way and, and not put so much pressure on the teacher to understand. You don't have to, I don't understand everything, even though I am a science teacher. Um, <laughs> no, it's not possible to understand everything. No, I found when I was preparing for this interview, I watched your video, the save the crash test dummies. Mm -hmm. And it was really informative for me. We actually have like a similar experiment, but watching your video, I was like, wow, this makes a whole lot more sense than it does just reading about it in the teacher's guide. So I'm so grateful yes. for that video. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, that. sure. I mean, I have a bunch of videos on my website. If everybody wants to go check out, I have some brain games that you can do. Um, I need to add some new ones because I have two new books coming out this year. Um, uh, but yeah, I, my goal is to make science fun and kids are learning and they don't even realize they're learning, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think crashing cars together with marshmallows on top is the definition of fun. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, let me just tell you, that was really fun to video though. I was like, I don't know how professional that looks, but it was, I had fun doing it. Well, I had fun too. I went upstairs and I grabbed my dad's antique, like orange metal trucks. I was like, okay, I'm oh. <laughs> there you go. They were actually so heavy that like I could barely like get them to crash together. So that was also interesting. Too. Oh, like, physics. Yeah, physics. 
<laughs> I was like, oh, this would definitely work better with the kind of car she has than these huge metal cars, you know, from the 1950s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, those were built to last, though, man, right? Oh, I, mean, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's amazing. They are incredible. They're, but they don't work well for smashing together and getting the marshmallow to fly. No, they don't. <laughs> <laughs> so um, tell us about a breakthrough moment you had in your writing. Oh gosh. Uh, there are so many, um, you know, it's like everything else you learn so much based on what you do. I mean, so my career started as a, I I worked for capstone. I did a lot of what they call work for hire books, which where you, um, are given a topic by the publisher and then you write your books and you write to a specific, like they tell you how many words to put in it, what age level, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. So my, my big breakthrough getting into trade where I sell a lot of my own ideas actually came about um, when I got hired by National Geographic Kids to do their um, book Brain Games, which is based on the TV show of the same name. Um, but for those of you that want to be writers, it is not for the faint of heart <laughs> and you must have a very thick skin because there, I have hundreds and hundreds of rejections. I still get rejections. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter how many books you've written. You still get rejections. But um, basically my big breakthrough there was I had met the editor, um, one of the top, oh gosh, she ended up being the managing editor of national geographic kids. Jennifer Emmett was amazing. I met her at a conference and, um, I took uh, a book, gave her a present, you know, gave her my proposal and she was like, yeah, it's good, but it's, it's more like educationally. It's more like something you would see in a, you know, in a, almost like a textbook. She's like, you know, Nash Geo, we write with really high energy and, and lots of stuff. So I said, okay, all right, fine. So for the next two years, I would email her about every four or five months. Hi, just wondering, you know, if you have any jobs for me, I'd love to work for you. Here's what I've been doing, blah, blah, blah. And she always responded with, oh, it's so nice to hear from you. Thank you so much. That was it. Like she didn't respond more than that. That was it. (laughs) So after two years, I guess I finally like caught a clue or something. And so I said, all right, that's it. I'm going to write something, a writing sample in the Nacho language, right? I'm going to do what she, I'm going to try and show her that I can write for her company. Um, and so I found they have the book called everything. There's an everything series. It's like everything, robots, everything, big cats, whatever. And I wrote my own version of one of those and submitted it to her. And two, it was, I think this was about two and a half years later. She was like, Oh, this is awesome. We'd love to have you work for us. <laughs> I was like, no, you know, I don't know if it just took me this long to catch a clue and figure out that's what you do. But you know, and then the, the funny thing was, is the very first email I said, she introduced me to my, who became my editor, Shelby Lee's. And um, Shelby's first question to me was, do you know anything about neuroscience? So if you've waited two and a half years, what do you say? You say yes. Of course. <laughs> Even if you don't know anything, you say yes. Um, and then it turned out that they wanted me to turn this TV show into a book. And that that was a very, very challenging thing to do. Um, but I figured it out. I created a structure from scratch and um 
the book is still selling. It sold a lot of copies and it's doing really well. So, um, but that was probably my big breakthrough moment was getting into trade um, from there. Well, and that's huge. And I think what you said can be applied to any writing. What you said yeah. was you learned how to write in that voice and in that style. And yep. that, that applies to any genre and any age level. And yes. I think that's really important for people to understand. Oh, yeah. Well, and and the, the other thing I like to tell um, writers is that, you know, do your research. Like, everybody with the internet kind of always is like, hey, can you tell me about books for this? And, you know, for me, I do my own research because, as we talked about before, I learn more. But each house, some, not, I mean, not always, but some houses have different voices or different topics mm -hmm. that they're interested in. So you, so if you pick, if you're going to send a big, long narrative story to Nat Geo, that's not going to work because that's not what they do. Right. Um, so if you're the writer and you want to be less frustrated, <laughs> try and do some research first and figure out what this publisher does and then figure out how to fit what you want to do into what they have. You know, that's the second time this podcast you've mentioned, and I want to dig a little bit deeper. For people who don't know the difference between a narrative text and an exp expository text, could you explain more about that? Sure. So narrative is going to be pretty much a story. Um, if you are familiar with a lot of the nonfiction picture book biographies, that's a story. It's a story of someone's life. Um, it's it's written kind of in longer terms. Um, it may or may not... It, Typically, narratives don't have sidebars, like the little information on the side, although they can. Um, but it's, it's really more of a just, you know, it's a story. It has a beginning, middle and end, the whole kind of arc thing. Um, expository is what I like to write. And because a lot of the techie stuff that I write lends itself to expository, it's more bits of information. So like... For example, in my Beastly Bionics book, if you were to look at that, there's each page is a spread. So, I, you know, on the left side and right side of the page of a different type of technology. And, and we have all of these different things like the design dilemma, the building, the bionics, helpful additions. So they're kind of little bits of writing that, that give you a whole bunch of information, but don't necessarily tie together in the story. Um, now, the way it works with, with this book is the chapter heading and the, the chapter introduction is a story. So that's kind of how it ties it all together. But um, expository is really fun. And it's for, I feel like the kids that like expository devour it. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's a really fun way of, of reading and learning. Um, I think it of it as like Jeopardy, right? I mean, I grew up watching Jeopardy and I still watch it. It's tons of bits of little, you know, parts of information that you get from expository. Um, whereas narrative is more of a storyline. I mean, both are great. It just, some people prefer one or the other or read both. Right. And I think that's why it's so important to make sure that we have a lot of expository texts in the classroom. You know, yeah. so often teachers and librarians are people who enjoy, an, uh, you know, narratives. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, we tend to, to buy what we enjoy, which is great. Narratives are fantastic. But the yes. problem is, is about half, half the readers in the world are actually expository readers. Yes. And so if we only have narrative texts in the classroom, we're missing out on a chance for half of our students to connect with literature. Right. And, and so I, I think they're a good combination because, um, um, uh, my friend, uh, Lori Walmark, she's, 
uh, amazing. She writes nonfiction picture book biographies about uh, women in STEM. And I think if you're looking for an introduction to get kids kind of an entry point and into science, that that those can be good for that. Um, they can show you, you know, a scientist like Ada Byron Lovelace or, or um, Grace Hopper who, who developed something and how they overcame all of these amazing things. Um, but what, if you have a curious kid who wants to know more about the subject, then hand them an expository book. You know, this, this is a way to, as I call it, continue the curiosity, right? Like you've hooked them on that topic, but expository books take the kids in further and then get them thinking about how they can do this or that or change the world, right? Um, yeah, that's, how I, that's how I feel about expository books. You can clearly tell that's what I write. <laughs> but I also think another advantage of expository books is that they appeal to readers who may, may have a shorter attention span. Yes, yes. Um, you know, in order to read a narrative, you do have to read the whole book, beginning, middle, and end, to understand the art. But the great yes. thing about expository is you can just read part of a page. You don't even have to read the whole page. You can just read a section on the yep. page and then yes. you can flip ahead 20 more pages till the next picture catches your eye and then read another section. Yes. So I think it has that advantage as well. Absolutely. Yes. So um, tell us about a breakthrough moment you've had in your uh, teaching. Well, so my teaching is not, uh, you know, quote unquote, standard classroom teaching. Um, but you know the the thing that i i love is that is is just interacting with the kids it, it never ceases to amaze me how intelligent they are and how how they can critically think um and pull several subjects together i don't i don't really have a specific moment in time that 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 i had a breakthrough but i i mean i've had like I, you know, like you have, I'm sure you've learned, I've learned so much from some of my students and from some of the questions. One, one kid was, he, I think he wrote me and he was like, okay, could you explain? He, he wanted to talk to me about Einstein's special theory of relativity. And I was just like, oh, you're like 12. Holy cow. <laughs> you know? Um, and, but the thing, the thing that I love about what I do with the teaching and probably my own breakthrough moment is, is I guess I just try to encourage them to follow their own curiosity, right? Like if they want to know more and they're asking these amazing questions, I will give them, I will say, Hey, go look up this up or whatever, but then come back to me. And some of them do. We have really interesting conversations <laughs> about, about some of these really crazy, like complex things that these 12, 10, 12, 13 year olds want to know. I mean, this gives me hope for the world, right? They're they're really smart kids. That's how I feel every day in the classroom. Mm. I it, it gives me a tremendous amount of hope, and they're always keeping me on my toes. My oh, husband, yeah. <laughs> my husband's a physicist. He teaches at the College of the Holy Cross, and um, you know, luckily I have him because they'll ask me questions, and I'm just I'm just teaching like from the text. And so our text said that there weren't any like particles in space. And then like the next day, the student came back and said, oh, my parents say that's not true. I'm like, okay. All right. I'm like, let me, let me get it. And I had to go home. And so then my husband had to draw it out. And he's like, well, there are particles in space. He's like, but they're so far away. Yes. Touch for the sound to go through. So then I had to come back and I could explain it. But I would have mm -hmm. never, 
I would have never had that conversation with my husband. And so, you know, not only does it fill me with tremendous amount of hope, but it gives me more knowledge because I'm just not going to, that's just not something that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in the particles in space. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, on the other hand, am. Um, and, and because I've been asked that question for astronaut aquanaut, can you hear something in space? Yeah. The answer is yes. <laughs> the answer, but also no, because astronauts don't hear anything necessarily when they're going on their spacewalks because they have their helmets on and all this kind of stuff. But there is sound in space. It's just like you have to, there has to be some type of matter happening around there for it to, you know, even tiny little particles for it to bounce off of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, I see, that's, but I, I mean, I get, I got asked that question during one of my presentations, you know, and here you are standing in front of 400 kids, give me your presentation. And they're like, Hey, is there sound in space? And you're just like, first of all, I hope I give the right answer. Secondly, you know, um, you get off on all these tangents and there are honest to God times I've told the kids, I go, look, you know, I am, I'm not a physicist. Like I can't, I can give you what I think it is, but I just wrote the book. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to go look that one up. So how do you balance teaching and writing? And I know your children are older now, but you, you raised yeah. three kids. So how yeah. do you balance everything? So, um, yeah, when, when I first started writing, they were, gosh, they were all home now. Or they were home back then. Uh, two of them were teenagers and one was like 10 or something. Um, but I I was a stay-at-home mom. Other than, you know, because I work from home, I should say I work from home now, but I was stay at home mom for a while until the you could really start working from home. Um, and so I would do all my work when mostly when they were at school. But that, you know, as you well know, work doesn't always fit into that nice, neat little package. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's it is a balance, um, especially because for my Johns Hopkins job, like I said, I usually I'll check my email. I mean, I, I'm working Monday through Friday and I'll check it probably usually I check on Sunday. I usually take Saturday off and I only have at most 40 to 50 students. Um, so that's, it's not overwhelming to do that work. Um, the writing on the other hand can consume you. It just depends on how much you're writing and how fast you're writing. Um, a couple of years ago, um, at the, I was writing six to eight books a year for trade publishers. Um, because I was doing my own work and also a lot of um, work for hire or also what they call IP work, which is intellectual property work where you, you kind of develop the idea with the publishers um, or they're like the IP, the big fat notebook would have been considered IP work because they, it was their brand and they asked me to write for them. Um, but it's not work for hire because I got uh, an advance on royalties. So it's, it can be fun to juggle all that. And then aside from teaching and writing, I also run my own podcast, um, which is called Solve It for Kids. And I just, that was my pandemic project. <laughs> with, uh, and I also run a literacy nonprofit and I run several blogs. So, you know, there's a lot going on. <laughs> can you tell us about, you know, Solve It for Kids and the literacy nonprofit and one of your blogs? Sure. Um, okay. So solve it for kids is you can find us on our website, solve for kids.com. Um, I, the, in a nutshell, so I've been an author for 12 years. I live, I mean, I lose track, but I have been honored to, um, interview some amazing scientists and engineers. And I actually used to 
go there, which was even better. Um, like in 2019, I went to Geneva, Switzerland to CERN where they have the large Hadron Collider. And I got my, they actually gave me a private underground tour of the Alice detector, which is where they're, they're looking um, at, as they call it, the soup that started it all. What happened immediately to our universe right after the big bang? Um, what? And so um, I've interviewed, and while I was there, I also got to walk through the antimatter factory, which is, they're literally creating antimatter. Like it's crazy. Um, so for, for all of that, you know, basically I, I, I do all of those things um, so that I can learn more about my books and all this kind of stuff. And now I forgot what your question was. My so question sorry. was to tell us about <laughs> I was like, where am I? How did I get off on that? Okay. So you want me to start over as, answering that? Sure, I'll, I'll, all right. So all right. About okay. So <laughs> solve for kids is the podcast that I started during the pandemic. But what I, what I wanted to do was introduce kids to all of the scientists and engineers that I have met in my career over the years. Cause I want kids to realize that scientists and engineers are not just like people to put on white lab coats and go into, you know, a lab or whatever, but they're so passionate about what they do. So I started a podcast um, with Jed Doherty and um, one of my friends, he has his own podcast, Reading With Your Kids. And we interview scientists, engineers, and experts and ask them to solve a problem. So like uh, we interviewed um, Dr. Brian Helmuth, who's from Northeastern University. And his team is diving, they just, uh, is diving on an underwater forest that was discovered a couple of years ago off the coast of Alabama. And so we had an interview with him. How do you map an underwater forest? So all of our, our podcasts are really cool questions that a 10 year old kid would want to know. We've interviewed um, Eric Whitaker, who is a world famous conductor and composer um, and asked him, how does he compose music? And it's really cool because he uses a lot of, science and <laughs> physics and, and how he does that. Um, I've interviewed Fabian Cousteau. We actually just had uh, taped a conversation with Philippe Cousteau, who is Fabian's younger cousin. And he has this really cool show on the, I think it's the Discovery Channel, uh, Exploration Awesome Planet. And he's all about biodiversity. So, you know, if you're interested in this, we have teacher guides that you can use some of these in your classroom. That's through teacher paid teachers, but all of the information is on the website. It's all for kids. Um, it's a fun thing to have a podcast, isn't it? I love it. It's so, yeah. it's so fascinating to talk with people and yeah. I learn so much each episode. It's brought me a tremendous amount of joy. Yes, me too. Uh, okay. So the literacy nonprofit I started is called kidliteracy.org. Um, and what, we basically decided I started that a couple years ago because um, where I live in Jacksonville, Florida, I didn't realize that uh, some libraries didn't really have a whole lot of books for kids. And they, and that we have a lot of title one schools and they've never had an author or an illustrator visit. And to me, that's the ultimate package, right? Like not only do you just, do you hand a book to a kid, but you give them the experience of having an author or illustrator visit their school. So um, we were, we were doing pretty well and then the pandemic hit, but we do have our 501c3. Yay. <laughs> which, which is again, also not for the faint of heart to try and get one of those. 
Um, but yeah, so we, we actually just did a virtual, um, uh, Van, uh, Vanessa Brantley Newton, who is an amazing, um, author illustrator did a virtual visit with one of our schools here in Jacksonville, uh, last week under our nonprofit. And, um, so, you know, we're, we are now switching to virtual until people can go back into the schools, but that's what we try to do is, is engage kids with literacy and show them that it's, it's not just a book, right? It's a, it's an adventure kind of thing. Are you working to bring authors into Title I skills all over the nation, Title I schools all over the nation, or just in Jacksonville? So far, just in Jacksonville. We're, we're just, yeah, because, you know, with all nonprofits, the biggest challenge is funding. So, so far, we've just worked in Jacksonville. And we've, we've done, like, we've had six, seven, eight authors come um, so far. And then, like I said, the pandemic hit. So, um, but yeah, so we're focusing here. Would we expand further? Sure. Um, if we get more funding, <laughs> you know? wow, that's a great program. That's fantastic. Yeah. There's, there's actually other, uh, literacy nonprofits kind of doing similar things to what we do all across the country. So if you're in an area, um, and you work at a title one school or you, you know, you've never had an author Google, see what you look around in your own area. There are a fair number of, of nonprofits that do some stuff like this too. Now, how many schools have you been able to service with? The uh, I think we're up to eight or nine so far, um, which is not bad. Again, you know, if you take away last year, we, we had like a whole big thing set up last year and then it all fell apart. Yeah. So now we're switching to virtual, which is great. But also, as you know, as a teacher, somewhat a little more challenging sometimes to pull together um, virtual author visits, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I mean, there are advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. I think one of the challenges is, is it's just harder to make that connection. There's yes. That much more distance between you and the people that you're working with. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I feel. I mean, I do virtual school visits and I've done some and, and, the, and I love it because I get to connect with the kids again. But I mean, what I'm doing, online doesn't compare to my in-person thing where I'm literally making them feel like they are in the crash test dummy seat and you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, it's just more fun. It's yeah, it's different. I've been teaching hybrid all year. So I've had 10 students on Monday and Tuesday and then the other 10 students on Thursday and Friday, and then everyone virtually on Wednesday and starting April 5th, we're all going to come back together, all 20 students in person. And you know, it's going to be interesting because I have one rapport with cohort A and I have a different rapport oh, yeah. with cohort B. And now we're going to have to come together on April 5th and start as if it were September to build a whole new rapport for all of us together. Because wow. the interaction you, you have, it's just different with each group. Yeah. And you have to try and meld the two groups together when there's only 10 weeks left in the school year, I think is going to be... Um, it's going to be challenging. It'll also be exciting. Even still, I just think that it's going to give me an opportunity to connect with everyone in a way that I haven't been able to on Wednesday when we're virtual. Yeah, everyone. exactly. Well, uh, kudos to you because, wow. I mean, I get Zoomed out just when I have to be on a couple, you know, a couple times a week. I can't imagine teaching a full day on that. Um, and then keeping track of everybody. And wow, you guys are doing, teachers are doing amazing things right now. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, not just right now, everywhere, but this yeah. is, this is so challenging. 
Yeah, it's it's been exhausting. Last spring was easier because we w- we were full remote, so I could just concentrate on doing that. But this year, with having the remote and the in person, has been um, it's it's been a different it's been a different challenge than last spring for sure. Oh yeah. So, what advice do you have for um, for teachers who want to write? Um, take some writing classes. Classes are, are, um, you know, that's how I got my start. I started with the Institute of Children's Literature, um, back when you would, you would write your manuscript and mail it to them. So it's, it's, that was, I mean, that was really only like maybe 13 years ago or so. Um, but, and then pick something that you're passionate about, but I think the biggest thing, and teachers are actually better at this than, than some other people, but think if you're going to write for kids, um, think, about, think like a kid. So when I write all of my books, I, in my head, I feel like I'm like nine or 10, um, you know, and I'm back in my backyard and, you know, I started a science club in my garage when I was seven. So I'm back in my science club, maybe a little older because I write for a little bit older. Um, but I, I bring the wonder of that curiosity to my writing. And for me, that works really, really well. So if you can find something that you're passionate about and curious about, and this goes for fiction as well, even if you just want to write fiction, um, which is also amazing. But if you love what you're writing and are interested in your writing, that will come through in your manuscript. Um, and that's probably the best piece of advice. And then, you know, like I said, have a thick skin and never give up. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. that's the most important piece of it advice, is. right? <laughs> yeah. I, I always actually, when I do my talks for writers, um, I have the slide with uh, you know, actually Winston Churchill, who said, never, never, never give up. Right. He was talking about World War II, of course, but we're, and, and this is on a completely different level, but um that's what I like to say, because it's, I mean, even in this day and age, people like, you know, I have 45 books out. There are still months that I struggle or weeks that I struggle. And I'm like, why am I in this business? And, you know, that's all normal. Um, it's not an easy business to be in. It's, it's an amazing business to be in. It's not an easy business to be in. No. <laughs> so um, what's, what's an um, exercise or activity that you can share with listeners that they might want to try in their own classrooms? Um, so the other, the thing, you, I, I'll go back to your question about the blogs. So the yeah. blog, one of the blogs that I started is called STEM Tuesday. Um, and basically it's, it's on the, from the mix up files blog, but you can just Google STEM Tuesday and it'll come up. And I, I have, it's, it's mostly run by a team of awesome award-winning authors who are my uh, friends. They all write science books and I, um, and every month we have a different topic. So say this month would be astronomy or maybe it's, uh, you know, sports, And the first week of the blog, we have a book list and we don't just, we do include some new books, but we also include books that hopefully you can find in your library. Um, The second week, we actually have an activity that they can do. Um, It's, it can be in uh, a STEM activity. It can be an ELA activity. It can be a crossover activity. The third week um, we have, we give writing tips. And the last week we do an interview with the author and we do a book giveaway. And all you have to do to enter the giveaway is to leave a comment on the blog. And we usually never have more than eight people. So your chances of winning a free book, <laughs> I'm just telling you, are very high. Um, 
you know, and as far as like doing an activity, um, the easiest one um, that that I could say, you know, kind of on the podcast is um, so for my Beastly Bionics book, like I said before, I, have, I do a presentation called Get Outside and Get Inventing. And I actually did this for the Atlanta Science Festival last week. And what I challenge you and your students to do is to go outside and sit and observe what you see and see if you see an animal, maybe a little lizard, a squirrel, something like that. And then imagine how, what does that animal do that could be helpful to humans? Is it, would we make an entire gecko that climbs the wall, you know, like a real gecko, a robot gecko, which they have, by the way. Um, would you take a butterfly and, oh, you know what it could be? It could be one of those little tiny listening drones, right? So, you know, I this is what I encourage kids to do. Take their notebook like a good scientist, write your observations down, draw a picture of it, and then come up with a way to, you know, to make a robot or something that'll help humans. Um, there's so many other ideas, you know, that, like I said, you can feel free to check out my website, uh, jenniferswansonbooks.com. I have lots of activities on there. Um, but if you want to add the ELA component, have the kids write a story about it, their creation. Um, it could be fiction. It could be nonfiction. It could be narrative. It could be expository. But um, that gets everybody, A, outside, and B, thinking about the world, right, around them and, and just enjoying nature and being surprised and excited by it. Now, is STEM Tuesday, do you do that throughout the year or just the school yep. year? Okay. Nope, well, all year round. And we and it's actually searchable, too. Um, so you can go um, to the STEM Tuesday homepage. You can search by topic, and it'll come up. Um, we've been, oh, my gosh, I think we're coming up on our fourth year of doing this. And we have a lot of followers, and it's doing really well. Um, uh, the other thing, if you're looking for brand-new STEM books that are coming out every year, then follow steamteambooks.com. That's another thing, uh, organization I started because I wanted to bring attention um, to let people know about all the amazing books, fiction and nonfiction, that have STEM and STEAM in them that are coming out soon. All right. Those are some great resources. Thank you for sharing all this. Sure. <laughs> so just for fun, what are a few um, nonfiction books that you haven't written that you think that all middle school classrooms should have? <laughs> that, I, that I haven't written? Oh, you mean other people have written? Yeah, exactly. Oh, wow. Um, so I'm now I'm looking at all of my uh, books that I have on my bookshelf over here because I have a lot of what they call mentor texts, right? Um, and the first one I see is Whoosh by um, Chris Barton and Don Tate. And that is about um, an astronaut who actually created a super soaker. Um, it was his name was Lonnie Johnson. He was an African-American um, astronaut and he created this super soaker. Like, you know, those fun, you know, he was doing something else and he, it was just a kind of, Hey, I think that's a great book example to show kids how you might've thought you failed. And I'm using air quotes here, but he really just created this really cool invention. And this is how science and technology works. Um, what else do I have up here? I love if sharks disappeared, um, because there you're learning all about the environment and biodiversity and all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, let me grab that. What is? I know the I know the author's name. I can't think of it. Lily Williams. Yes. Um. So she has a whole bunch of books. Um. You know the Nat Geo books are amazing. Um. Let's see. There. I mean, I could go on. Oh, one of my favorite books is How They Croaked. How They Choked. There's two different books by uh, Georgia Bragg, and she does a fabulously snarky version of these. Um, those are fun, especially if you want to, these books can also be great to show kids how to write, not just for the science that are involved in them. Um, there's, I mean, there's so many. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Those are, um, those are awesome titles for me to check out. I've, I've, I know about if sharks disappeared, but I didn't know yes. about whoosh or how they croaked or how they choked. Yeah. <laughs> there's, I mean, like I said, there's, there's so many, I mean, one of my favorite ones is gravity by Jason Chin. And that is just, it's, he's an author illustrator and it's just beautiful images. And yet you're learning how gravity works. So it's, it's kind of ingenious um, how science can be portrayed these days. I love grand Canyon by Jason. Chin. Oh yeah. Oh yes. That's my, another one of my favorites. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a ple uh, such a pleasure, Jennifer. Well, thank you for having me, Kate. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, me too. So I wish you the best, and I can't wait because now I'm going to bring. I have super gear and everything robotics and how have animals evolved and adapted right here in my hands. Oh wow! And so now I get to bring them and uh, share them with my class. And I've also ordered a couple more of your books, so I just can't wait to. Well, thanks. And, yeah, and book talk them and see who takes them home. So thank yeah, you so much. Well, thanks for having me. And just a reminder, if you guys want to find me online, I'm at jenniferswansonbooks.com or solveitforkids.com. But um, I hope everybody had fun today. It was delightful speaking with you. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I have a favor to ask. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving a positive review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, or wherever you download your podcasts. Reviews will help other listeners find us. Join us again on April 30th when Chalk and Ink talks with school counselor and children's book author Sarah Scherger. Sarah talks about how her work in schools inspired her to write her fabulous middle grade novel, Operation Frog Effect, which is written in eight different points of view. Finally, I want to give a shout out to author-illustrator Sarah Brannon. Sarah created the logo for Chalk and Ink, and her newest book, Summertime Sleepers, will be available in bookstores on April 27th. Congrats, Sarah! Alright, that's it for today. Looking forward to chatting with everyone again soon. Take care! Bye!